0: Apple, right? What did Apple do? They had the iPhone, the iPod, and they took the music and they put it together with music, iTunes and so on. Look at Sony. They had the Watchmen. They had Sony Pictures they had everything, but they couldn't do it together, right? So Steve Jobs had the ability to connect and make a thing to happen. Sony had it all. They couldn't do it. That's the difference.
1: This is the Indianness podcast. Stories of success from leaders and change makers of Indian origin, Why have Indians achieved success across so many different disciplines around the globe? I have no idea, but let's find out together. Every story is unique and we have a very unique one today. I'm very excited to have Prith Banerjee with us today. He's the chief technology officer for ANSYS, a global leader in engineering simulation, but he's also been CTO for ABB, which is another large global conglomerate, Schneider Electric, and also global technology MD for Accenture. He's been on the board of several publicly traded companies, a published author, and also a very strong leader in the academic world. I invited him on this show as he's had the journey from academics to industry, to academics and innovation. And I'm curious as to why and how he has traveled that journey. Welcome, Prith. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you very much, Sanjay. looking forward to discussing this topic with you. Wonderful. Prith, as you know, this is about folks who want to know or follow in some shape or form the journey you had or learn from that journey. So in order for us to, you know, get to know about the journey, the, the defining moments of the journey, we have to go right in the beginning. So if you can just walk us, where were you born? Tell us a little bit about your parents and siblings. That will be very helpful. Absolutely. Delighted to do that. So I was born in Khartoum, Sudan. I'm obviously of Indian origin, of
0: Indian parents, but my father used to work for the Indian embassy. So he was uh, located in Sudan, which is where I was born in 1960. I don't remember anything about Sudan. I, I spent my first two and a half years and then Moved to India. Where
1: in India did you move to?
0: I stayed in Calcutta. We are originally Bengalis. We we have a home in Calcutta. But my father had a rotating job. So after we came to India, then we went to Maithan, Bihar. He worked there for a while. Then he went to Bhutan. We lived there for about four years. So my childhood was all moving from place to place every four years. So that is actually one of the things that I think did influence
1: my background, which I will talk about later. So moving sorry to interrupt you. Uh, moving places means new schools, new friends, new environments. Bhutan is a culturally very different, Sudan is culturally different, Bengal. I will talk about it. And it has taught me how to be adaptable because the reason I've had the
0: opportunity to work with many different organizations in academia, in startups, in large companies, right? And I think I attribute it to the fact that my father actually moved from location to location and He was successful and we also grew up and we knew how to make new friends. So it is built into my DNA, I guess, to be adaptable and so on. So that's something that I think has clearly had an impact. Talking about my parents, my parents are both Bengalis. They're from middle-class families, hardworking families and so on. But they greatly valued education. In fact, I still remember my father telling one of his closest friends, so they're having a conversation about one person trying to invest in buying a car or home or whatever. And my father said, the best investment I can make is the education of my two children, my brother and I. And I, and of course I was very young when he said it, but he repeated that to me when I was older. And that still resonates with me. And that is part of Indianness. I think most Indian parents value the education of their children higher than any
1: other material thing. That's a message that resonates and we'll talk a uh, little bit more about that. So you came, moved from Bhutan. Where did you go from Bhutan? So so, so I'll
0: tell you. So I first, my elementary school was in my town in Bihar. And then I did my schooling in Calcutta. I went to Don Bosco School, Calcutta. For people who don't know, it's a very prestigious school. It is. And that is another of the Indianest thing that when you asked me, when we were prepping for this call, you are talking about sort of uh, Indians doing well and so on and so forth. And and one of the things I attribute to is the fact that some of us in India right, have the chance to go to these prestigious English-medium schools, which gives us the communications advantage in working in countries such as the U.S., right? People who have not gone through these English-medium schools, Catholic schools actually are at a disadvantage. So, again... do You think that's a disadvantage, Prath? No, so what I'm saying is, and many of my family friends and so on, right, family members, their children did not go to these English medium Catholic schools. They were relatively expensive compared to the other public schools that were there. And that was the point I was trying to make, that my parents decided to invest in the education, right, over other things, right? They, I'm sure, gave up buying a car or whatever so that my brother and I could both get through that fantastic English medium school, Catholic school education, which is part of the reason that I think I've become uh, successful. So
1: anyway, that that was... but well, how was Don Bosco for you? How was that experience? Because after moving around, it was competitive. Did you make friends there? It was competitive. But the thing is, we were enrolled in Don Bosco School. But as I said,
0: we were living in Bhutan. We were living whatever, right? So we actually went through a very interesting school background where we were technically registered at Don Bosco. But the schooling was all self-schooling, right? So essentially, we came, did exams, homeschooling. My mom and my, my parents, my father said they did the coaching, but we took the exams to graduate from class to class and so on, right? But that was hard for about three, four years trying to do this while you're commuting back and forth and doing this. So that was also part of the challenge, right? So in the early years, it was not that easy to make friends. It was the academic thing that we were doing. And not quite doing it. And then the sort of little things about sacrifices that my mother made, right? And when we were going to school, we did not have a home because our home was a uh, home in Bhutan, right? So when we are periodically coming here, we are staying in Calcutta. And my mother's parents' home was in Howrah, which is a relatively remote part of Calcutta, right? And so early in the morning, my mom used to take, my brother and I, in public transportation, took like an hour and a half to two hours, right? And she stayed at school with us. She couldn't go back, right? She spent the entire day and got up very early in the morning, right? Cooked all our food and lunch and so on. Stayed at school all day and then took us back home, right? The way back in the evening. These kind of sacrifices
1: are things that you see, right? And they leave an imprint on your mind. But tell me, this homeschooling, at least in India, that must have been hard, right? What did you get the textbooks and then your mom and dad would teach you? How would that work? So that is another
0: interesting thing.
1: So it is not totally homeschooling. So
0: what happened was uh, it was partly homeschooling, partly sort of self-schooling, motivated and so on. I also was fortunate to have a brother who is two and a half older than me, and so he did a lot of the self-schooling and he was my coach, my mentor, and he still is my co quote, quote and mentor, right? And we have both had identical careers. So we, we both went to Don School. So we both went to IIT Kharagpur. We both went to University of Illinois for the PhD. We both went into electrical engineering. Both are in academia and both have work in company. So it is just an identical background. A lot of my advancement and so on, I do attribute to the very successful brother that
1: I have. So he would be teaching you. I've heard of older brother giving hand-me-downs to their younger, but he was actually teaching you in many ways.
0: Yes, exactly. So he was the one who had to really learn on his own and sort of... But were you doing okay in the grades and exams and stuff? We were both reasonably good students. So we did not need a lot of help. When we got stuck, so when my brother got stuck, he was helped by my father. And when I got stuck, I was helped by my brother. So that's how... That's another part of the Indian ministry right
1: the very interesting thing of the background for four years this happened for four years and then after that
0: after that my father relocated to Calcutta so then the high school years you cannot do this kind of so this were like in grades I would say three to six right we could manage this right the eight nine, 10, 12 the that grade you need to do in actual school
1: so you were there in Cal you were in Cal at that time. And so, then the rest of my journeys, I was
0: fortunate to have done very well in school. So I got into IIT Kharagpur, which
1: you probably know is a top place, right? Your brother had already gotten in, right? So there was a lot of pressure on you that you have to get into. Absolutely. In fact, throughout my career, I let me tell you, because he set the benchmark for you, man. (laughs) He set
0: the benchmark, and so the expectation was I had to do as
1: good as my brother or better. Without competition, it was very healthy. It was an aspirational thing. But then, Prith, when you got into Kharagpur now, for people who don't know, IIT Karakpur probably, I would say is, and I could be wrong, but, it, you know, we have a lot of IITs. It's one of the better or top IITs. It is the oldest IIT. And at that time, it
0: was one of the best ones. Now, there are other IITs who have become improved. But at the time when I went, it was one of the most prestigious IITs. But the story I want to share with you is the following, right? So I was number one in my school, right? In Bosco. So you are a top student and you think you are on top of the world, right? Then you join IIT Kharagpur and you join in electronics, which is the most sort of prestigious thing. At that time, they didn't have computer science, right? So there's a batch of 30 students. And you look around and this person is the number one student from South Point. The other one is number one from San Xavier. And so I, should, I call my mom, I my Mike, these are all number ones, right? So the pressure that you get through, right? In your sort of 10 years in school, right? You are going through this thing and essentially you establish yourself as the number one student. In the last three, four years, you just coast through because everybody knows you are the you're the number one So, But now it's a reset. One amongst many
1: and they're all super smart. But how was that? I mean, you had a brother who was there, but that must have been a shock to you. It is a shock, right? And so the first year was
0: really tough having 30 number one students from different schools, right? And then as it turns out, I finally did graduate at the top of my class. I got a President's Gold Medal from Kharagpur, which is so number one across all this. So, but what helped you through that process? So this is the part I'm going to tell you, right? The part I want to tell you about, number one, was fortunate to have had a mentor in my brother who kept me on the right path. There are many very bright students who go. The first time they leave home, they go to a college and they find the independence and they go astray. Drugs and this and alcohol, all kinds of stuff. And time management and so on, right? The fact that I had an elder brother who was, oh, by the way, who also graduated the top of his class in Don Bosco and in Kharagpur. And so... There was, again, an expectation. So I think that the fact that I had a mentor, a person to follow, right, even though I had all kinds of distractions, I could not because of the societal pressure on me would not allow me to do things that a normal person would have done. So I think that is, again, part of Indianness, right? Indianness being that in an Indian sort of family thing, right? your cultural standing and so on, right? You don't want to do anything that brings you shame, family shame, right? You, that is just not trouble. So that is part of Indianness. I think that's an important thing, right? And I have a son, which I will talk about, right? When he graduated from Berkeley, in his graduation speech, I kind of gave him a, a, a heartfelt message. He said, have a true moral compass, right? And irrespective of whatever happens in your career, follow the moral compass. Basically, don't follow money, don't follow fame, whatever. Do things which, because inherently in your heart, you know what is right. And if you just do what is right in every step of the way, in your job, in this pursuing, this et etc., you will always be right. And so that moral compass thing, I think I learned from my father and down through my brother and so on. So that is part of the reason why I did not go astray and I managed to stay at the top of the class.
1: So you think your moral compass was set by your father? Absolutely. My father and my mother, actually. In fact, I wrote a book recently. The book on innovation that you wrote. Yeah, we'll come to that. But so your moral compass, which I think is a very important point you're making, which is also part of Indianness in many ways, is what guides you. So that kept you in those tough years. To do the right things. But just doing the
0: right thing does not necessarily make you the academically most successful thing. Because this is sort of the context I was trying to use. Here in, I am in IIT, right? In my class of electronics, in a larger class of among disciplines, there are 500 students. So to go from this highly competitive thing and look, you, many people do the right things. And so on. you also need luck. So one of the things I will tell you, and it is... Do you believe in luck? I actually believe in a combination of luck and practice, right? There's stories that people say, Oh my god, here is this football player who scored a goal. Oh my god, that was so lucky, right? It is so lucky. And this football player, I forget who it was, who said, You're yeah, absolutely I was lucky. And it turns out that the, the more I practice, the luckier I get. The point is that the reason I believe in luck is you can practice and prepare all the time, but you also need a break, right? And then In my career, I have been fortunate to have got the right breaks at the right time. And so you need both. You need luck. You cannot just get to the top with pure luck, but you cannot also get to the top. I'm not saying I'm at the top. I'm at the, I would say, top 10%, right? You cannot also get to the top
1: purely through hard work. So it's a combination of preparation and luck is what you're saying. So now, Prith, your brother had, by the time, probably graduated when you were coming out, right? He had gone to the University of Illinois. Was that a decision that he so, made? So Yeah. So at that time, the University of Illinois had very strong ties
0: to the actually the formation of IIT Kharagpur way back when in 1950 was. It was University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign faculty who had actually created IIT Kharagpur, the electronics department, right? So All our professors had a tie to them. We always all aspired to go to Illinois. Currently, it is MIT, Stanford, Berkeley. But at that time, Illinois was the place to go. So my brother went to Illinois. My brother went to Illinois. It was just, if I could get into Illinois, I would go to Illinois. It was was a thing, right? But we are both in electrical engineering. But my brother went to semiconductor electronics, and I went to the computer engineering. So we deviated in the subfield. But I still went to uh, the University of Illinois. So as soon as you graduated, you went there? It was fortunate. I was number one in my class, a president governor So I had actually offers from multiple universities, with full scholarship. But I chose Illinois because it was a good school. And from my parents' perspective, hey, Prith, you go where your brother is. Right? So, but by that time, wasn't he graduating out? No. So he was about to graduate. So I mean, it's always... There is that overlap was there is a four years for a four to five years for a PhD. There's a overlap. So I, he always was there to provide the guidance. Again, that is another example where when people from India come here, you can go astray. Hey, you are leaving home. You're leaving India for the first time and you do crazy things, right? Because I had that social pressure and I had a mentor. I did not do crazy things focused on, on doing well, et cetera, et cetera. And, you can call it a boring life. I, I had a lot of fun, but in constraints, right? I never lost track of the moral compass.
1: So, how was your experience coming to the US? Now, obviously, you had a brother and Illinois, which is you know Urbana-Champaign is a little different than IIT. Correct, the academics are a little different, etc. How was that? Talk about shock! That was the real shock when. From Don Bosco to this
0: thing, the only shock was in Don Bosco, there was a distribution, a Gaussian distribution of the talent of the people, right? You and I went into a group which was all super sharp, right? So that was a shock. But coming to the U.S., right? And again, I will tell you, I came to the U.S. in 1981. I'm dating myself. So at that time, like today, right? I mean, the world is global, right? You are in India and you're watching CNN. You're watching the same shows and you're watching Netflix and so on. So kids in India these days are exposed to the same U.S. culture and it's not a challenge. For me, coming from a pure middle-class Bengali culture, et cetera, et cetera, to come to the U.S. was a hugely transformational thing, right? I am sure you know this, right? So in addition to the academic challenges, now there was the extra dimension of a cultural challenge that, oh my God, everything is new and so on, right. right? And I mean, I just walk around, obviously my office, there. Well, all Americans, right? And just American kids would just come and raise, hey, Brett, what's shaking, man? And he's okay. So I didn't know what to, what to respond, right? So I came to my brother. He said, "He's said, hey, just making He just said, how are things, right? So don't worry about it. So next day, <laughs> I see an uh, American friend. So I tell him, hey, Greg, what's shaking? And he just slaps me again and say, oh, nothing's shaking, but the trees, leaves on the trees. So I, I learned that, okay, that's the way to do talk. So I'm just saying, so culturally right the things that you learned earlier so now you are relearning a whole new culture to to get along with people and so on right it is hard i mean again as i said i I didn't get used to cnn and
1: netflix and youtube at that time right so this is a absolutely brand new things and so on right so how did you get through all of that was that hard did you think maybe i should go back it was hard i mean it is it was not easy now
0: all these students who are here. again, they are the top of the top from now the best universities in the world. They're coming here. And and so now again, that thing got reset,
1: right? And you came from the weather temperature of Kharagpur to a super Illinois cold weather. And the very first year, we had
0: the worst winter storm in 20 years, right? Just walking through Two feet of snow, drudging through the snow and going to class and wearing a parka and then staying in an apartment doing groceries and trying to learn how to cook. I I never knew how to cook. I had to learn how to cook and do do studies and so on and so forth. I I look back and I say, wow, that was an absolutely amazing experience. I learned to be truly independent by coming here on my own as opposed to coming here. There are two types of people here, right? Among my friends, right? People who came here while being married, and those people never learn how to cook. Right? And people like me who came as a bachelor, who had to
1: learn how to cook, right, to be independent. So, How are the academics in Illinois? Did you have any issues with that?
0: So I fortunately, no, I again, did graduate at the top of my class and so on. So that part was good. And I managed to do the fastest PhD at Illinois. In three years, I went through the whole master's and PhD process. I almost have a record And then I I had all kinds of job opportunities, but including sort sort of IBM research, Bell Labs, et cetera, and also many, about a dozen universities. But Illinois made an offer for me to stay back at Illinois as a professor. Again, that is something which is very unique. Usually universities don't recruit their own. So now this is an example of luck and being at the right place at the right time. And I will tell you how usually they, do not hire their own. And the year was 1984, and there was a tremendous shortage of computer science, computer engineering professors across the U.S., and especially at Illinois, because Illinois being located in Urbana-Champaign, which is not the most desirable city in the world, Illinois was struggling to recruit top-notch faculty. And so here I was, I, I had graduated and I had offers from the Carnegie Mellons and the UCLAs and Michigan's and all the top schools. And I could have gone, gone anywhere. In fact, I had verbally accepted to go to Carnegie Mellon. I had to, made up a mind, we have CMU. But my advisor took those dozen offer letters to the dean saying that look at Prith. If this guy is so good, he got offers from 10 offers from IBM, five offers from Bell Labs. He is a good kid. You should bend the rules. Now, the reason they bend the rules is because they were having a hard time in 1984 to recruit top quality people, right? Now, things have changed now. So I happen to be at the right place at the right time where there was, look, if there were not any openings and if there was not a dearth of of sort of computing, whatever talent, right, I would have gone to Carnegie Mellon and I would have gone there. I mean, I'm sure I would have done well, but Illinois was one of the best places for me to develop as a faculty member. And And I will tell you why. So as a faculty, People think, oh, you're a faculty, you're just teaching. Right? But in the U.S., the faculty, the teaching part is, I would say, only one-fourth of your job. The main job is to do research. And to research, you have to do the research with graduate students, and you have to support those graduate students with funding. And so faculty members are always chasing funding. And you have to write these proposals to the National Science Foundation, to NASA, and then at the end, and you write lots of publications, and you, and then you get tenure, right? And you have sort of six years, maximum of six years, and it's up or out. So either you get promoted to associate professor or you're kicked out, right? You don't get tenure. So it's very stressful. Those years are extremely stressful. I was lucky that I made that in a shorter amount of time. But that is, again, part of the luck. The luck part, I would say, is because I was at Illinois, I didn't have to learn. I mean, I knew the professors. I knew the system. My professor, my advisor, who was at Illinois at the time, helped me for the first some grants, right? So he said, hey, I have an SRC grant. Hey, why didn't you join me in this? Right? So he wrote one of these, two of these things, proposals together. And so that early break I got because I was in the same university as my advisor. The first funding, The first one came in, right? And then things like, so at that time, as a a junior assistant professor, right? I mean, there was this very, very prestigious thing that the National Science Foundation used to give out and that is no longer there, called the Presidential Young Investigator, PYI, big deal, right? Very competitive. Everybody writes, I got it, right? So again, I will
1: tell that is luck, I mean, look, there are lots and lots of people who apply. They're all very good. But how is that luck? I, I didn't get, I don't understand that. How is
0: that luck? Because look, I mean, look, I, I have been on panels. I have, I have been on the judging areas and so on. As I said, there is luck in this practice. So obviously I had a good record, right? But I can assure you in that group of 10 PYI awardees, right? There were like a thousand people who applied, right? And to make it to that thing is, and I will tell you, just because I got the PYI, right? The rest of the grants right? I got, then the next year I got the IBM Faculty Developer Award. So essentially, success begets success is what they call. So, oh my God, he got the PYI. Therefore, when next time I wrote an NSF grant, oh, he is a PYI. Therefore, he must be right. So essentially, and because of that, I got early tenure. So while I was being recruited, the department head, the dean at Illinois said, the reason we don't want to recruit our own is we want you to be independent. The faculty are supposed to be independent of anybody else. Once they get tenure, they don't listen to even the president, right, or the dean, because you're supposed to have absolute independence in your thought process, right? So, my dean said, you have to be independent of your advisor. Now, this is a challenge. The advisor, on one hand, helps you, but on the other hand, He now thinks of you as a junior guy who will do all the hard work, writing the proposals and so on. And his name gets the grant, but then you are doing all the hard work. So it was a kind of interesting thing. It was good for me. But then the lucky part was, as it turns out, my advisor got a fantastic chair, Professor Offer from UT Austin, and he left. Before I got my tenure. So this is another luck factor, right? So in a university, right? So there are these tracks. Say, okay, you are the leader in a field of, say, cryptography or a field of this computing or fault of copy, right? So if that advisor is already there, that university already has a star in that area. There's no need to give a tenure to another person in the same area. So the way I was adjusting it, I actually changed my research direction to be. By design, trying to be away from my advisor, wrote papers, independent. So it was a hard struggle trying to be independent. But the fact that he left on his own, right, at the right time, because he helped me in the first few years when I really needed to have my own wings, he left so I could really have my own wings. So I'm telling you, that is luck.
1: That is luck. And that, I agree with you, is luck. That is truly luck.
0: But anyway. So then I am doing well in my career. I got tenure by then. So I got tenure associate professor. Then another four years, I got a full professor. So I, again, the thing that I said about the fastest PhD, I was also one of the fastest to get to eight years to get tenure, right? The next step is, okay, so what do you do, right? you become a chaired professor. You have a department here, et right? And there is, I mean, Illinois, there were a hundred faculty of electrical engineering in the department. It is one of the top, three or four departments in the country, MIT, Stanford, Berkeley, Illinois. It's a powerhouse, right? So yes, I'm a full professor. I'm 10 here and so on. But now I'm one of 100 super smart people. To stand out among them, so you have to have an opportunity. And I will give you an, an example of luck. Being in the right place at the right time. And I don't want your audience to say that, oh, this guy is only all luck, right? It's not luck, but it's a combination of luck. I mean, I have had to prove things also. But I will tell you, So my my research area was in the area of what is called high-performance computing, supercomputing. And so Illinois was the sort of heart of supercomputing, and I was doing research on supercomputing, applications, et cetera. And at that time, the college wanted to start a new program, a computational science and engineering program, like a graduate program. First time, the person who, who was trying to do this was an incredibly, smart, but his personality was very arrogant. So he basically said, this is my way or the highway. You guys know nothing. I'm telling you this is what it should happen. In a company that works, but in a university setting, it failed. Right? So he proposed it, went away. And I watched him. I watched him fail. Second time around, there was another professor who was appointed as his designate. Another person from his sort of descendants, right? He tried to come in, right? And he made the same mistake. You guys know nothing. And I'm telling you this is what we should do. And I watched and I learned. I said, This is why conceptually they are absolutely right track, but their approach was not right. And I was on those both those committees where I saw it being proposed and it failed. Now the luck part comes in, right? Two failures. At this time, I had an offer to be the department head of computer science at UCLA. That is not luck. They had full search. I got the offer, right? So, I mean, I'd stayed at Illinois enough times, and so let me give it a shot. So I got the offer. The timing luck is to counter it. At that time, the University of Illinois was about to start this computational science engineering program. So the counter is, I need to have like an equivalent. So I have already a full professor. I need that thing, right? So this opportunity came in. I had the outside offer. They matched it, and I got became the founding director of CSE, right? But then I actually had to make it successful. So I was the third sure. guy. And this time it went through because I saw the mistakes that the two previous people made. And I... Right made sure it, it, it followed the academic things, solicited the input of everybody, all the departments on board. And within a year, we had a successful so CSE program at, at the University of Illinois. So the, the luck factor is a sort of combination. Of, again, as I said, I got the first job because re- Illinois was having difficulty recruiting people. Look, I, I I had a dozen offers, and so that helped. The fact that I had an offer from UCLA to be a computer science department head, right, and I would have left, and the dean knew it, that matching thing, again, timing-wise, right, it did work. So, that was sort of the first sort of 12 years in my career uh, in academia, and I owe 80% of my professional success to my first 12 years at Illinois. I kid you not, because in those years, those formative years, I did the most fundamental research, I had access to the very best graduate students. These were all students from the IITs and so on. I, I graduated more than 35 PhD students, 350 papers. I mean, I am what I am today because of those formative years. When you are at a top engineering school like MIT, Stanford, Berkeley, Illinois, Georgia Tech, you are part of that really solid research thing, right? And I look back and I received all kinds of awards in my life, fellow of IEEE, fellow of ACM, all those things were because of the research I did at the University of Illinois with those wonderful graduate students that I had and the faculty members I had. And I think the success was basically because I stayed back at the same school to, to do this. Now, here is where I started. So I did my PhD, I did a master's, all from the University of Illinois. And I could have retired at Illinois. I could have. just Because I I had a good life. I had nothing else to show or prove to anyone. I had proved myself and so on. At that time, my wife, she encouraged me, says, this is ridiculous. You need to do something different from your life. And so she was the reason that I said, okay, let's look for an opportunity. And And again, there were opportunities that came My way, because you are at the top engineering school, so I get a chance to be a department head of electrical engineering at Northwestern, right? So Northwestern is a prestigious private university, well-known as an overall top 10 university, known as an engineering school, maybe 15 or whatever. But in electrical engineering, they were not so good. So here was an opportunity for me, right, to come in from a powerhouse electrical engineering department. And make an impact. And that was the first you asked about challenges. This was my first challenge in my professional career. I had done all those things as an individual, as a professor. Now, can I take a department which is not as highly ranked, in the ranked in the say 25 or whatever in the US news, located in a top engineering college, located inside a fantastic university ranking. The university ranking was in the top 10. Illinois was got. Nobody knows of Illinois except in electrical engineering. right? And so here was my opportunity to do this. This, I would say, I don't know if you call it luck or whatever, but this was the challenge I accepted. Now, this is where I say my wife's thing is very important, right? Because she said, you know, you're vegetating at Illinois, right? You just, Because she looked around with other faculty members who had just retired at Illinois. And she said, no, I want you to do something else with your life, right? And she pushed me. And leaving my comfort level at the University of Illinois, where I knew everybody, the dean, president, provost, everybody knew me, right? Going to a whole new environment where I could completely be a disaster, big risk, right? In a private school, people coming from public schools actually don't succeed in private schools. But I spent eight wonderful years at Northwestern, and I did... Very well, reasonably well at separate right? And then I became a dean at the University of Illinois, Chicago, et I, I was able to move up in the academic leadership because of the early days at Illinois, right? And again, I thank all the graduate students that I've had, as I said, more than 35 students, more than 350 papers and so on. But now let me share with you a personal change trajectory. Again, motivated by my wife. So I had done my University of Illinois, kind of. She pushed me to go to Northwestern, right, and so try. But now I was again in academia, doing stuff, right, department head. Then I became a dean, and so on. So I was in academia, and she looked around. Many of her sort of compatriot, their husbands were in industry, and, and they are doing startups, and so on, and so forth. They said, "Hey, I, I hear X Y Z is doing a startup. Why are you so comfortable in your academic life, right?" I said, "Okay." Let me see if I can do a thing. So the next big phase in my career was to do a startup based on, say, again, there's research that i done at Northwestern. The year was 2000. It's still a dot-com job, so, but this was after the dot-com crash. So I'm trying to start a company, right? And I, I was still in academia. So I'm a department head at, at Northwestern. So I'm, I'm in academia trying to start a company because I'm due for a sabbatical. So in sabbatical, basically, you can take leave from a university for a year and do whatever stuff, right? And so it was an interesting place to be. And that timing was just before the dot-com crash and everybody was starting companies and I was trying to do something in Chicago. So that's the catch, right? And so I, I wrote some business plans and again, I had no idea of writing business plans. I'm an academic, right? I, I learned, I write, uh, whatever. I talked to a lot of people. Northwestern had a good business school, the Kellogg School. So I talked to their dean at the time, and, and he helped me and so on. So I wrote a business plan, And I got funding. means I got term sheet for funding. At the rate, I, I said I wanted pre-money of $8 million. I was trying to raise $2.5 million. Yep, yep, yep. Whatever I wanted, I got, right? And the VC, so this is why I say the pre-bust, right? the vc said Pray, this looks so good you should just do this and why are you waiting for the money to come in you should just hire the people and buy the equipment and rent offices so i did all of it and i went into a 100,000 dollar personal debt because my vc said just go for it because hey let's we are just doing the legal documents and so and they were just dragging their feet in trying to so it's that the weekend of thanksgiving right and i'm supposed to fly to the East Coast to sign and get the paperwork and the funding on Monday after Thanksgiving. On Wednesday afternoon, the VC calls and says, we are pulling out because the dot-com bust had just happened, right? And everything was in bad. She said, aren't you reading the news? I said, yes. Now I am $100,000 in the hole. I am an academic. I don't have a lot of money, right? And i had actually taken a, a second mortgage on my home. And I had a three-year-old or four-year-old son, just one son. My wife does not work. She's a homemaker. I am a professor. Professors don't make a lot of money. And I'm deep in debt without a clue. You asked me for low point. That was the low point in my career. And that Thanksgiving was the worst Thanksgiving, right? And people, we had people over, I was carving the turkey and so on. The back of my mind, I said, what the heck am I going to do, right? My life has just gone from perfect success to complete disaster, right? There's no company. I'll be poor, and I don't know how to pay off this $100,000, etc. So I will tell you, that challenge was actually the opportunity. I will tell you, Sanjay, had I got that easy money, I would have built the wrong product. Because the product that I was building was based on a DARPA-sponsored research. So DARPA had this thing for uh, demoed it to defunctional defense and here's this DARPA stuff, right? So the RD prototype I had built was for defense applications. And I was just going to do that and just copy-paste and say, here's a product. I would have spent a lot of money. This entire $2 million would sort have of gone into the waste without talking to a single customer. Because, hey, I already I have done the research, I have all the publications, I have the patents, I have the exclusive licensing from not question to this company. I wrote the business plan. The VC has funded me. I'm king of the world. I don't need to talk to anybody. I would have wasted the entire money and built the wrong product. When this kick happened, I had no money. I talked to other VCs. The VCs said, hey, do you have customers? I said, no. They said, go show customers. So I went on hyperdrive, talking to customers and talking to customers. And as I did, I had a really clear view of what it is I should build. And it was the new definition of the product was very, not 100% different, but enough different to make a difference. But then I was, again, lucky with a company who I will not mention. This company gave me a $2 million deal over three years to build this product. The catch was it was exclusive to that company. And they were not the bigger player. So let's imagine there are two or three, like Toyota and a Ford. And I'm doing this Mickey Mouse project with a a, a, a Yogo, right? So I landed up with Yogo. Why Yogo? Because they wanted this kind of technology. The big guys, they did not want to talk to a startup, right? So here was, so I partnered with a real, year two company to get the early money, but they had locked me into a three-year contract. So I could not log anywhere. Using that, because I had a $2 million thing, right? that was my customer revenue. I was able to raise the $2 million from the VC. The luck part was in that one year that I built, that small company maybe did not do well. And I was smart enough to put in a clause that if you do not renew in the second year I would be free from my exclusivity. that was luck. had they succeeded they would have locked me out and I would not be able to do anything And then I raised second round from this larger company which I can now say what it is is Xilinx. and then Xilinx actually finally bought my company that story of excel chip is, is a book by itself right as a academic you think you are trained to be a researcher, not to a businessman. And there is a difference, right? When I am the founder, CEO, I go and talk to customers. Every customer says, oh, can you do that? And to me, the researcher, is said wow, that's an interesting research problem. So I come back from California, tell my people, and you say, hey, this is like interesting thing. So let's drop what we are doing. Let's work on this new thing. I pivoted. Then I next week, I go to some other customer and they say, oh, can you do this? Oh, this is even more interesting. So I just kept pivoting. And so the learning was, I was not as disciplined as I should. And I blew through all that series A and $2 million without really building a focused product that would cater to Lots and lots of customers. So there were mistakes. And then, of course, that got fixed in Series B, et cetera, et cetera. So again, I did not make those mistakes in my second startup. First startup, they all say you learn a lot, right? Which is why VCs actually fund failed entrepreneurs, right? Because they actually learn a lot. And and I was, I would not say successful entrepreneur. I was an okay entrepreneur because I I did sell my company in the first round, but not at Facebook valuations, right? But I learned a lot in the process. And I did a second company. So, phase one is my academia, 20 years. And phase two was my work in the two startups. So, then I come back to the academic world. And now I'm getting all kinds of offers to be. So, I'm a dean at that time. I'm getting offers as provost and all provost and presidents in different places. right? And I'm on that trajectory. Hey, I now need to go there. And I have an offer to be provost at the University of Rochester, which is a good school, another cold place, I'm going just one cold place, and like this close to accepting the offer. And out of the left field, a search firm for the same thing said, hey, by the way, your name has come up to be the director of HP Labs, Hewlett-Packard. I said, you must be kidding. I have no experience in companies. Says, well, you know, they are the last six director of HP Labs are promoted from within. This time, the CEO wants to look at somebody from academia with a startup background, and you fit the profile. Are you interested? So I interview, and I get the job. And I, I would say it is lucky, because in all the career things, when you look at IBM Research, HP Lab, Bell Lab, right, every director has gone from within. No other place has recruited a guy from the top, right? Or from outside, right? So... I lucked out in the fact that here was the CEO at HP at that time when I just had the right combination of things. Right, he was looking for a person with my background, a combination of academia and startups. Right now, there are, and I moved to California. So now here is the thing, which is. Part of the Indianness and so on, right? Or the lack of Indianness. So I now have two offers to be provost at the University of Rochester. And I stayed yeah. at four years, I will be a president of a university, no doubt. And yeah. in my mid-40s by 50, I will be a president of a university. I know the trajectory is known. And now I have an offer. I'm mid-40s to be director of HP Labs. Going at the top of an organization, if in a company. And I have tenure at University of Illinois at Northwestern. Here I'm going to a place and I can be fired if I don't do well. Anytime. That is the real world, right? Everybody, including my brother, said, you are crazy, Chris. Don't do this, right? Because you had a tenure position at UT Austin. All my friends, you are tenure, deanship. You are crazy. You have a provost offer. You're crazy. This is where, again, my wife said,
1: go for it. (laughs) We need to do a podcast with her. She's the real risk taker and entrepreneur. I did not mean for her because I asked her, I said, look,
0: you are a homemaker. Moving to California, home prices are high. There is a possibility that we'll be out of a job and buy back, right? I said, "Let's,
1: let's try it, right? So there was this risk that we took and I took it. At HP Labs. HP Labs. At that time, HP Labs was still
0: very prestigious. Very. And now, of course, HP Labs is is no longer the case. But when I joined HP Labs in 2007, it was one of the top four prestigious labs, Bell Labs, IBM Research, Microsoft Research, HP Labs, right? The very best people went there. It's a cut through the chase, a lot of exciting things that happened at HP Labs, but then HP Started having its own challenges, right? And again, I, I worked under three CEOs, right? First under Mark Hurd, then under Leo Apotheca, then when Meg Whitman and so on. And I could see the writing on the wall that HP Labs was headed in a downward trajectory. This is where I would say it's not luck. You got to see where the writing is on the wall. I mean, you could have just, oh my God, I, I lucked out, I have found a success story in a company, right? At least I moved from academy here. I have a stable job. I will not be fired. But then I took another plunge. At HP, I was reporting to the CTO. I had an offer to be CTO at ADB, a power and automation company. Now, let me tell you one thing in the world of job transfers and so on. They say that it is risky to take a different job in your same company. So, suppose you are running HP Labs, right? And you become head of sales. There is a one-dimensional degree of risk because you have not done that before. So, it's one risk because you are in the same company but a different job. You can go to a different company but same job. So, suppose I go from HP Labs and become head of IBM Research. Same job, same industry, etc., right? The third thing is you go to a different industry. You are from an IT industry. You are going to automation industry, energy, transformer, switch gear, right? I have no clue. So I did three risks. I go from director of HP research lab to a CTO role, which is a different role, because now you have to coordinate the business and so on. You go to a different industry, the ABB, and, oh, my God, you go to a different country, in Zurich, in a European company with different things and so on. See, so it was like highly, highly, highly
1: risky, right? And so I, I did it. Because uh, you thought it would challenge you. It would challenge me, right? And that, boy,
0: was that a hard thing. That was incredible. In fact, my CEO, Meg Whitman, said, "Prith, I know it looks like a shiny toy. And she, in the end, she, she said, Prit, don't go there. We want you to be here. And I said, do you have a CTO position? No, we don't, right? So her offer back was, just stay back at HP Lab. I said, no. Basically, I had I, I went to her and I said, I have an offer a CTO, ABB. Can I have a, a CTO thing? I said, no. I mean, I will not create a whatever role, except just because. So I have always taken risks in my life. And so that is part of my growing up because I moved around and so on. But fortunately, I didn't sell my home here. And my wife went with me to Zurich. We lived in an apartment there and so on, but she actually hated, hated Zurich and so on. So she kind of moved back and I started commuting back and forth to Zurich. So I did that for a couple of years. But that was not a positive overall lifetime experience. I had a fantastic job, very prestigious, working for a really wonderful company, traveling around the world, etc. But in my heart, I was not happy. So I was just getting stressed out. Because I was traveling all the time, commuting between California and Zurich and so on, learning a new language, Swiss, etc. It's a so different culture.
1: But was the cultural fit also there? The business culture fit also was a challenge?
0: People of Indian origin go to Switzerland all the time on vacation, right? You go to see all the Bollywood movies. This looks so wonderful, right? Oh my God, and so on. You try and live there as an Indian, and it is hard, right? And again, my wife told me, and she said, look, in the grocery stores, right? I mean, there was very subtle racism or so on that, that she faced. And I said, I don't face it. He said, you are part of the executive committee. You are reporting to CEO, right? You are top eight dogs at Eri. Obviously, people respect you and therefore they treat you with respect. But I am a homemaker. I'm living in Zolikon. And when I go to my hairdresser whatever, they look funny at me, right? So not an easy thing. As an aside, right? What <laughs> I have tell my friends, if you have to live abroad, America, for Indians, is actually a great place to be. Within America, if you have to live, California is actually a great place to be because it's like the United Nations, right? I mean, so, uh, I mean, I felt like a foreigner in in Urbana-Champaign, but in California, I, I just everybody looks like, right? So anyway, that's an aside. So then you, what did you say? You said, I can't deal with this at AB? That is why within two years, I can switch jobs And I, for the first time in my career, I took a step down to come back to the Bay Area. So I came and I reached out to some Bay Area companies and I reached out to Accenture and Accenture CTO, Paul Doherty, who, I mean, literally I say, hey, Paul, do you have a job for me? He said, the CTO job is mine. (laughs) You are a CTO. You have to come and work for me. For the first time in my career, I took a step down, right? So I was head of HP Labs, reporting the CTO. I became the head honcho. I was personally not happy. My wife is here. I'm there. I'm commuting all the time. And so my happiness index, personal life is not that good. So then I come back to the Bay Area and my family life is happy. But then
1: professionally, I'm no longer a CTO, right? So because I got the taste of the CTO. But so how was that mentally and emotionally for you? Because you've been on this, right? The youngest tenure, presidential award, all those things. That must have been a tough mentally for you. Right? That was tough mentally. My colleague Zarak Sincha was
0: fantastic. It was great, but it was professionally a step down. So that was emotionally not a very positive.
1: Do you think going to ABB was a mistake looking back? No. Should you have done more due diligence on them? I should have. St- it out at ABB. I look
0: back today, had I not taken that easy way out, hey, just let's move back to the Bay Area and so on, right? Because ABB was a super prestigious company, right? And I was making so many connections and so on and so forth. But it's that this is where I guess the Indianness part of it, right? I was not that ruthless business thing, right? I prioritized my family happiness, right, over this. I have conversations with my wife. I said, why did you not stay and hang it out there, right? We had lots of friends in the Bay Area, right? But that choice I made, right, I gave out too quickly to move back. So essentially that reset my professional thing, right? Had I not moved back, I think I would have been in a different position, potentially a CEO-level position of it. $10 Ten billion dollar company because CTOs have actually done
1: that. Yeah, because right now CTOs are reporting to the boards, and you are not a typical CTO. You are, I mean, look at you. I did
0: not look back on the HP Labs thing. Do I look back in going to Abb? No, I look back on leaving Abb to come back to Accenture, right? For
1: making my personal life higher priority over this, so. so So what is the message to some of our listeners about that ABB experience? Just stick it out. Don't care as much about your personal life. Stick it out for, give it some more time. So one
0: or two years is too little because it takes about three to five years to really have impact, right? And I did not give it that. I gave up too early, right? Fortunately, as luck would have it, I got a second chance, to be CTO at Schneider Electric, which is exactly the same as ABB, right? In some cases, I would say more well-known. I think more people know Schneider than ABB. But as luck would have it, Schneider did not have a CTO prior to hiring me. They looked at my activity at ABB. They said, oh, this is really good. And they wanted to create the structure of ABB because ABB, that Swiss company that the R&D structure was beautiful. And whereas Schneider was a very decentralized, nothing completely running it like independent nations. So that was a culture. So the CEO hires me and said, I saw what you did at ABB. I want you to do that here, but I didn't do anything at ABB. I just took over as with that centralized structure. So all I had to do was just follow Right here. I was asked to do a completely different thing against the culture of a highly decentralized company. And I was making good progress, but after two years, the, the CEO said, nope, I've changed my mind. I don't want it to be centralized. I want it to be centralized. So the role went away. I had a position, but the real power of the role, right? I mean, here is the thing that you are running, creating the whole centralized thing. That thing went away, right? So I said, well, that doesn't make sense. At that point, fortunately, this opportunity at ANSYS came in and I joined ANSYS. And, and the story of ANSYS is I, I was recruited by Ajay Gopal, the CEO, current CEO, who knew me at HP. So he was the head of HP software when I was running HP Lab. So when he was looking at his CTO at ANSYS, again, a brand new role, he said, he called me Sir said, Pit, I want you to join. And then I basically was about to say, Not again will I make the mistake because I've seen what happens with the newly created CTOs. But he convinced me, he says, no, Pitt, we'll work on it together. So I joined as a single person CTO with nobody reporting to me. And now after five years, I have a very healthy, going strong CTO office that is doing some absolutely amazing technology strategies talking to customers, creating this field city organization, driving innovations around AI, machine learning, and so on. So I am in a real happy situation working for a U.S. company. My wife is happy.
1: I am happy. I'm happy with my job. So all good guns, great things happening. That's fantastic. Now, a lot of people know ABB, Schneider, Uri Schofilina. What is NCIS, just in a short summary for our so, ANSYS
0: is a modeling and simulation company. So, you look at the world around us, right? And you you drive a car. That car, when it's designed, is designed by a CAD tool, by some CAD engineers using Autodesk or whatever. And then you have to actually simulate how that car will operate. That simulation is done by ANSYS. When you are flying a plane, that plane wing, whether that thing is going to fly or not. So, Boeing or, or Airbus builds that, designs that thing. Whether it will fly or not, is proved by ANSYS. In the energy area, you make a, a wind farm or solar panel, et cetera, made, simulated by ANSYS. High-tech chips, any chip that you see from Intel, AMD, NVIDIA, right? Simulated by ANSYS. Healthcare area, a pacemaker, whatever. So we have more than 40,000 customers and anything that you build, if you want to simulate it before you actually build it, is powered by ANSYS. So our mission is Powering human innovation, advancing innovation. And we are a $2 billion software company with about 6,000 people. And, and we transform lives across these five
1: verticals. That's fantastic. Prit, there's so many things that I want to ask because your journey is just amazing. You talk a lot about luck, sometimes calling it the right place at the right time, etc. So when you look, there were some key defining moments in your life, many actually, Uh, and there were decisions to be made. You know, when I look at it as Don Bosco, Karakpur, sticking it out, you know, following your brother, uh, Arjuna Champagne, some of those. For people who are listening, obviously you say, hey, luck is a big factor coming from, you know, a person who is Industry, scientific driven, that's a very important thing that you're saying. But is there anything that you think you had a storied career? You've done phenomenally in academics. You've done phenomenally in the corporate world. You did fairly well in startups in a worst time of startup history. So what are the lessons here if you were to just surmise it in a few ways? So the... What I would summarize is the following, right? That I have always
0: been motivated by learning new things, right? And when people say, here is a challenge or it cannot be done, right? Rather than give up, I have navigated my way through and then tried to find a a way out. I think I do well thinking quickly on my feet and I'm very adaptive and so on. And it's a combination of my natural curiosity or whatever. So my drive towards to find out new things, curiosity that has allowed me to be what I am. And again, one of my very good friends, we were just talking about an idea of a startup and we were making something. So he brought his son with him to this discussion. And the son, who is 20 years old, he just told his his dad, he says, because my friend, he is doing quite well, but he's not as accomplished as I am, at least on, on paper, right? So he asked his dad flat out in front of me, he says, why is Frit uncle so successful? Implication is compared to his dad, right? Yeah. Then he asked him, and he says, you both went to IIT Kharagpur. You both did your PhD at University of Illinois. And look at Frit uncle and look at you. We are actually same age. And that was a tough question. (laughs) I said, look, I don't want you to answer this. He said, no, this is a good question. And I came home and I told my wife, this is what my friend said to his son. He says, it is Prit's ability to rapidly distinguish between signal and noise. He says, we all get lots and lots of stuff. comes to us, Right oh, there's AIML, oh, there's this, oh, there's HPC, there's quantum computing, there's a GPU and so on, right? Again, this is the part that I will sound like bragging. Time and time again, I've tried to sift through the noise and say the signal is this, right? So at ANSYS, for example, we are trying to do AI machine learning applied to simulation. There's all kinds of things that we could have done with the future of ANSYS. I put my, and I said, this is what we are going to work on, right? In the high-performance computing area, we have done shared memory. I said, oh, we are going to work on GPUs, right? Now, I picked those things, and you may call them luck, but look at NVIDIA, the GPUs, right? So they, And look at the AI. So all those bets that I made in my career to get all the noise that is coming in, right, and trying to identify these things and rapidly assimilate and say, this is what we're going to work on and try to guide a team and motivate a team around this thing. And I call that strategic planning, right? And again, now I'm getting into business kind of stuff. Everybody talks about strategic plans and I have built strategic plans in, in at University of Illinois, College of Engineering, at HP Labs, at ABB, at, at all at Ancest. A strategic plan is a plan for the worst case, right? So you cannot do a strategic plan for Oh, everything is fine. Oh, I think this is going to be good and so on. I just build a case for the world. best case scenario. A good strategic plan is a plan that says, what if this bad thing happens and we'll do this? I'll just give you a very specific example. The flood happened in Libya. They actually knew that there was a storm brewing for a week. No, I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying. A good strategic plan would be for the government to have a plan. If there's an earthquake, we'll do this. If there is a flood, we'll do this. And we'll evacuate people and so on, right? The lucky companies somehow managed to go through and and be prepared. Look at IBM, right? It's just gone through all kinds of things and look at sun and look at debt. They failed, but IBM has been successful.
1: Great. One question about what your friend said. That you have the ability, I agree with him completely. To distinguish between signal and noise, is that a skill that can be learned, or is that just inherent in you? For our listeners, is that something they'll be able to? Absolutely,
0: yeah. Yes, you can learn. It's not like I, I was not born with that, right? I will tell you, I was born to be a academic. I was not born to be a business person, right? But so the signal to noise. What I will say is that my first one or two years at, at HPL as I made a lot of mistakes, right? I was trying to use my academic thing. Oh, let's do papers and so on. But I very quickly recognized a signal that, hey, to be successful in the corporate world, you need to really understand the business things and so on and defocus these things. And so on. I unlearned some of the academic stuff, right? In order to learn about the business world and so on. And then when I did the same thing at the startup world, really big focused I made all kinds of mistakes. So the... Learning to sort of the signal from noise is something that, so you you have to see where you're going wrong. (laughs) Quickly adapting and so on. And I think we all have the ability. I I don't think this is an innate thing and so on. I've tried to build a muscle to enhance that skill. Again, it may sound like bragging. I'm just saying, this is, I'm relating what my friend told me.
1: One other important question I have is you've written a book on innovation. And core thing about you is innovation. Same question I'll ask you, and this is about either an individual or a company. Can they? Lo- can an individual learn to be innovative? Or is this just, you know, people say, look, Elon Musk has this inherent ability to innovate. Or, or Steve Jobs. Or, so or Steve Jobs, etc. Et but can people learn to be innovative? I think they can. In fact,
0: my book, Innovation Factory, the 60-second summary of the book is there are sort of three types of innovation I talk about. Horizon 1, which is a short-term, which is incremental modifications to existing products. You have a laptop, you have a server. Next quarter's laptop will have 300 gigabytes of disk and 32 gigabytes of RAM, right? It's the same laptop, but with these features, right? That all large companies nail it. They do a great job. Going to adjacencies, today I'm doing this. I'll go to, I have a product for US. I want to go to China with a different voltage, different... Scripts and so on, that also they would do well. But for a company who is making laptops and making an iPhone, takes a Steve Jobs. That's Horizon 3 innovation, right? And for a company that is making online retail of books and to go into cloud computing like Amazon requires horizon three innovation, right? So so that is the challenge that I talk about. The way to do this is to practice what I call open innovation, which is saying that universities do a great job in the really futuristic Horizon 3 innovation, but they only are doing the ideas, right? So you need to talk to universities to learn what's what they are thinking about. So if I'm at ANSYS, I'm saying, hey, here is a professor at, at Carnegie Mellon or Stanford who is actually doing AI, ML, applied to simulation. So learn from those people. But then those university people actually don't build products. So those products actually come from startups, right? So Two areas of Horizon 3 innovation is look at startups, look at academia, and you combine it. And the organization that will do that is actually the CTO office of every company. And you cannot only rely on external things, right? Because then what have you done yourself? So you have to have a core central organization like an HP Labs, like an Ansys Lab. But the role of those people should be, don't think, oh, it's not invented here. That's not good. Your role should be somehow bringing that innovation from yourself organically or from the outside. And your role is to bring that innovation to your company. Don't worry about whether you did it yourself or you managed to leverage an innovation from the outside world. That is the key message. That can be learned. That's fantastic. I've learned a lot today. For example, Apple, right? What did Apple do? They had the iPhone, the iPod, and they took the music and they put it together with music, iTunes and so on. Look at Sony. They had the Watchmen. They had Sony Pictures they had everything, but they couldn't do it together, right? So Steve Jobs had the ability to connect and make a thing to happen. Sony had it all. They couldn't do it. That's the difference.
1: That's so true. So Prith, now, where do you see your journey going from here? You've done it all. Academics, industry, startups, I don't know what, but there's still so many chapters left in your book. All you have to do is ask your wife. She'll tell you there's at least five more chapters left. So where do you see your journey? So I see myself literally giving back to society.
0: I've been fortunate to have done innovation in academia, innovation in startups, innovation in large companies and so on. A way to give back to society is through uh, serving on boards. So I've served on uh, two public boards, Cubic and Cray, and then a private board. On Turntide, I've also served on non-profit boards and so on. It is my plan to be on more public, private boards, advisors, mentors to startup companies and so on. I live in the Bay Area. There are all kinds of startups that people come to me for advice and I actually give free advice to people based on what I know.
1: That's fantastic. Fantastic. So giving back and if people who listen to you, they come to us for mentors stuff Absolutely. I would love to be a mentor to one of your audience members. finally, we have these very quick lightning round questions that I want to ask you. And we ask this to all our guests. And you have defined this, but I want just a one-line answer. You defined it several times, uh, very, very well, actually. What is your definition of Indianness? It is the mix of the original Indian
0: culture that we have, the strong family feelings and so on, the passion on the family and the culture, the tradition. I mean, I didn't say this. But I'm a big fan of Indian classical music. I play the sitar on my own. And I have always listened to, even in the Bay Area, when there's a classical music concert, I go and attend it and so on. So I've lived here more than 40 years, but I still are deeply connected to my original Indian, the food, the, the music, the culture, and so on. So that is what I call Indianness making sure you remember your
1: roots and hang on to the roots, but in a positive way. Absolutely. That's a great answer. Prit, one person from either from India or U.S. or anywhere else of Indian origin, not your brother, that inspires you. It is actually a
0: Netaji Chandra Rabos. I have not met him. He He died before I was born. But everything I have read about him and so on, he has really inspired me Right to so stand up against the British and actually to some of the Indian Congress people, even to Mahatma Gandhi and so on. He took a different path. Right. So I am very inspired by Mitaji Subharshani. Yeah. Oh,
1: that's, that's fantastic.
0: and And I know you did not ask that question. In here... The person who inspires me is actually Obama. I, I kid you not. I, I am a big fan of Obama because he is a person who is a deep thinker. And I, again, I have actually met him in person. But his ability, to his high intellectual ability, both Bill Clinton and Obama, but Obama is at an absolutely different level. His intellectual ability, curiosity, the take really complex things in the Middle East and so on that signal to noise. In an interview with Farid Zakaria, usually presidents, they rattle off from scripts. This guy knows his stuff and the way he shares.
1: So those are very important. So he is my local hero. President Obama and Netaji Subhash Chandra Last one line, since we've got you. Uh, if you were talking to Prith, who was just graduating out of uh, IIT Kharagpur, what would be the one or two very brief advice that you would give him? To the Prith who's graduating from IIT. Follow your passion. Just don't do things just because even though I have not practiced it. So
0: the, I, I followed my family's expectations. I have to do a PhD, do a whatever so right. so there was an expectation because my brother was so, so accomplished. But the what, advice would be follow your passion. If you're graduating from IIT and you are really interested in music or drama, and you can you think you can really do a good job, just follow your passion and do that really well. I know of so many people who actually went to IIT and then they went into drama, rented the music, and so on. That incredible thing. So again, I'm not saying all of you should go into drama, but if, you start up, if it's a startup, if it's an investment, banking, or whatever, follow your passion. That is what I would recommend.
1: You know, 90% of the people I ask, they say this thing, and I always wonder people who look back they somehow feel that maybe they should have followed their passion more or something like that but no but that's very good advice prit thank you so much you've been so so generous with your time but also with your conversation I really really appreciate it this has been very inspirational for not for just our listeners but also for me so thanks for taking the time thank you for reaching out
0: Thank you for listening to The Indianist Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future inspirational stories.